0: This is No Stop Lights with Ken R. I want to thank our sponsors, Mickey Fins, Marvara PD Electric Co-op, Carolina Bank, Pepsi of Florence. We're heading, I mean, in all honesty, let's be completely and totally candid with one another. The summer doldrums are fun when you're not working. And when you're working, they're not so fun. We, you know, this period of time, people are traveling, they're enjoying their family, uh, they're they're living a little more flexible in their scheduling, and we, you know, we understand and are sympathetic to those who aren't as in tune with what we do here. Um, during the summer months. We expect that to change. Um, in August, uh, the Republican primary is a hotly contested. Uh, maybe not. Maybe not as hotly contested. We anticipated the Republican primary to be hotly, um, contested. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Democrat primary, you've got a, a sitting president running for reelection that is normally not very eventful. Uh, maybe RFK junior spices that up a bit. Uh, maybe he does not. One of the ingredients in this, uh, this period of politics in American history, I, I don't think is being taken as seriously as it probably deserves to be taken and, you know, um, Trump has been perceived as somewhat of a political novelty and I'll accept that there's a great deal of novelty, uh, with the way he runs his campaign, the way he conducts himself as an irreverent, bombastic, narcissistic, uh, political figure, but there's no denying that the manifestation, because I've argued Trump is a manifestation. He's not, um, he's not the leading indicator, but rather the result of things the the American political class didn't pay um, close attention to. I made a list. I'm going to find this list uh, real quick to make sure I don't misquote. Um, This is kind of back a napkin because I think at some point in time, historians will be asked to, I mean, as much as they don't want to, because historians by nature are academics. Academics like to be very serious people, and it's easy to say this Trump phenomenon is not serious. To, To me, it's of the utmost seriousness because it involves so many socioeconomic factors that aren't ideological. I mean they aren't conservative, liberal in nature, CEO pay, income inequality, NAFTA, tarp, corporate capitalism, uh, bailouts. I'm sure I could do a better job of elaborating, but that's kind of back a napkin and and when we're talking about you know this president in a historical context, it's easy to say well you know Jefferson was this or or you know um Adams was that or Lincoln was this or Reagan was that or Obama you know the, these these um very consequential political figures and we've tried our best not not me personally but you know um, those of us who comment on American politics in a serious fashion have tried our best to dismiss this as kind of a fit and rage it's a hissy fit I mean, the American public got pissed off, and you know they'll they'll get back in order. That they'll get back calmed down here in a second. And I think there's so many things to, to, to to look at when evaluating how in the world the Republican primary voter and then the American people in 16. And let's not forget, guys. I mean, Trump's one and one in presidential elections, but he's gotten more votes than any Republican ever has—75 million votes. I mean, we can argue how many Biden got. I'm not saying. He got them legitimately or not? Um, I'll let others make that determination. But we know that Trump got seventy-five million votes. No Republican has ever gotten uh, that that amount of votes. And I'm not saying he got the votes because of CEO pay or income inequality or NAFTA, TARP, corporate capitalism or bailouts. What what I am saying is there is a very very serious discussion necessary by historians to properly understand. And critique and evaluate why Trump was able to do what he was able to do. Now the story's unwritten. I mean, just give me the the um, the conclusions unwritten. We don't know uh, where where this ends up. But but I do believe that there's an absolute uh, an absolute necessity that historians look past their personal opinions about Donald Trump, but but rather critique, handicap, um, scrutinize, account for in a way they've done for other presidents the same thing for this phenomenon that that some populist in america like but but the majority of you know those in charge of the uh what am i telling the, the um the the folks with the keys to the liquor cabinet don't much like sharing the keys um to the liquor cabinet and that's kind of a um i mean that that would be a punditry uh, a pundit's way of explaining this my, my point is there will require a deep thoughtful historical analysis of what led Americans to believe that somebody like Donald Trump needed to be president. Who am I to criticize the novelty of becoming you know, a legitimate candidate? Because there's a novelty component here. You send a dollar, you get a $20 gift card. Uh, if you raise money, you get a 10% commission. Trump introduced this abnormality, right? I mean, th- th- there was a traditional way campaigns were run. And when Trump announced in 16 that he's running for president, it was a novelty. I mean, to the point that the New York Times covered it under the entertainment um, section. So who am I to say, uh, I'm kind of revisiting my critique. Who am I to say that Ramaswamy doesn't deserve to do it his own way, so to speak? Um, Trump did it his own way, and nobody expected him to end up. Yeah, it's pretty creative, you know, actually, to I mean, think it, about it. Yeah, it is creative, but... Does it go against the, the spirit of you know, there, there, that's, showing the grassroots support that I think that benchmark well, me, is supposed to, me, supposed I, to do? To me, I've always felt that elections are about ideas. Can I articulate my idea and vision in a way that gains enthusiasm of the folks that I need to take time out of their day, go vote, or write a check? That's winning hearts and minds. That's campaigning um, 101, and... You know, I guess I'm romancing nostalgically about politics when I participated because I do believe that that when I ran for office in 04, 08, uh, 2010, I ran for a party chairmanship and won. Um, It was about uh, coming up with ideas and a vision and a set of concepts that you you try to find an audience that believed in similar things. And, you know, you kind of went on the hustings and you, you told your story and you, you, you express what you believed in, and you hope to find a following out there. You hope to find a few amongst that following that could write a check. And I guess the Internet has changed that. Um, you know, 24-7 news cycles have, have changed a lot of that. But I think Trump probably as much as anything broke the mold for how we traditionally campaign. Uh, it is somewhat of an entertainment business now. And I think there's an entertainment component here, that can't be completely dismissed. I don't think it's good for voters to choose the most entertaining guy as their, you know, leader. I think it's the guy with the best ideas and who you think can incorporate those good ideas into the government. But um, but but things change. Nothing static. I think politics is a bit like that. We were touching on uh, in the last break uh, with Doctor Bold about some of the um, some of the things that led to Trump. I think that is going to be such. I don't know that academia will have much interest in pursuing that, but it's going to be historically significant. I mean, history at some point in time will force us to, 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 to retrospectively look back and say, okay, what led to Cheeto Jesus? I mean, what led to this crazy guy? You know, what led to, you know, one of our major political parties believing this was uh, better than all the rest that were there? And may do it again. I mean, Rev talked about, you know, you win in 16, you lose in 20, and you win again in 24, and there's a chance that happens. I mean, there's not, I mean, that's not unfounded. That's not out of the realm of possibility at all. Do the math. I mean, Trump was at 232. He wins Georgia. He's at 248. I mean, there's a, you know, Georgia, excuse me, um, Florida, and Ohio are red today. So whoever the Republican nominee is has a very legitimate chance to become president, despite some of the mainstream media narrative. I mean, it's not at all unlikely that Trump wins. I mean, I think his chances are what? Look at the RCP average today. I mean, there's a—Biden's uh, Trump's, uh, Biden's at 34%, Trump's at 28%. So of all the people in the world, he's the second most likely to be elected president. And, I mean, put Trump and Biden on the playing field simultaneously, Trump's got a, a, a not just a puncher's chance— He's got much better than a than a puncher's chance. but but I, I do believe there has to be some intellectual curiosity about what led to Donald Trump. We had a big kind of a yeah somewhat of a disagreement about Jefferson and slavery. Josh sent me a video um that that explains why, historically, we're not telling as accurately as we probably should the story of Jefferson and his relationship with slavery. We know there's a confounding relationship there, but I mean, there's no question about it. But, but the mainstream narrative is kind of a soundbite. It's a bumper sticker, and it's much more complex than that. Well, I think when you hear make America great again, it, it, what led us there? I mean, I wrote some things down during the break. I mean, this is back of napkin, um, you know, CEO pay, income inequality, NAFTA, uh, TARP corporate capitalism, bank bailouts. I believe the day the federal government decided to bail Wall Street out. Now, now once again, I think there's a fair, uh, you know, hour-long radio segment to be done or podcast to be done about whether or whether or not the bank should have been bailed out. You know, the financial system was at the precipice of implosion. I mean, I, I get that. I mean, I understand. I think there's a very legitimate debate about what the government had on its plate and what it had to consider and, and not consider, but, but to believe that that didn't lead to some resentment toward uh, the haves. And, you know, I, I just think when you, when you look at Trump, I mean, to me he's a manifestation, and, I, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, as long as the donor class and the voters are somewhat in the same camp, it's tolerable you'll get a George W. Bush, you'll get a John McCain, you'll get a Mitt Romney. I mean, the nominee of the party will will kind of go along and get along. You, you know that the donors are at the front of the line, but you believe you're in the line. I mean, there's a, there, there's a, a, a kind of a commonality there. But, but all of a sudden, one day you wake up and your party's donor class are driving the agenda, and the agenda disenfranchises the majority of people who have historically voted for Republican conservative candidates. That relationship gets totally asymmetrical, and and some sort of bottom or bottom up oriented revolution begins to take place. And and I'm not saying it's all about CEO pay. I don't have any idea what the CEO of Goldman Sachs should make, or the CEO of Vanguard or or um, or BlackRock should make. I have no idea what to address income inequality. I mean, I'm a capitalist. I believe in the free market. I think the guy with the best widget deserves to make the most money. The guy that works the hardest deserves the highest compensation, NAFTA. I mean, I, I don't think NAFTA set out to intentionally create human carnage where our manufacturing base was, but it did. You know, TARP, I, I'm not a member of Congress. I don't know what it was like. I have no idea what, what, what the intricacies of international finance are. But, but our government at every turn seemed to side with not the average American. You've got the average American to consider, and you've got these corporate interest donors, the, 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 the ruling class. I mean, they're, they're, you know, the insiders, the establishment. I mean, there are a lot of ways to define those. And once again, I think when those relationships become asymmetrical, it's inevitable that somebody runs as a political disruptor and the public buys it. And, and I think Trump was, once again, um, kind of a manifestation of this asymmetrical relationship that is going to create political chaos for the next twenty or twenty five years. I mean I, I sincerely believe that this is the beginning of political chaos. um I, I guess the most unusual part of this Reb is the issues that Trump ran on and the reaction his voters had were more <sighs> more liberal than conservative in nature I mean it, you know um I, I use the expression a lot, probably. Too redundantly, you know, the Republican Party was the least likely to be counterculturalist. I mean, that, that you know, do you believe when when you look at the Republican base, do you see Woodstock, Bob Dylan, and Jimi Hendrix, or do you see that with the Democrat base? And and I think that's the, I mean, it's a, such a an interesting and curious point of the Trump phenomenon that if Woodstock were held today, we'd have more Trump voters there. Than anybody I mean Bernie Sanders voters would be there. RFK voters would be there. But Hillary Clinton voters wouldn't. I mean, they're coastal elites. By and large, Joe Biden's wouldn't voters wouldn't be there. I mean, I understand you vote by default. You got a binary choice. There's a Republican and a Democrat. You don't like the the Republican conservative orthodoxies, but Trump's not a conservative. I mean, Trump's not ideologically motivated or driven. I mean, I think he's a deregulator. I think he's a pro business business guy. I mean, you would expect that somebody in the private sector made a lot of money, um, you know, building hotels and golf courses and, you know, wins and losses. I mean, you would expect that guy to not be very sympathetic about regulation, you know, or some sort of government oversight. I mean, you would expect him to say, nah, let's let the, the economy kind of take care of itself. But there's so much more to this. And, and I think when you look at Jefferson, historians are naturally inclined to, to, to be curious about, you know, because he was an intellect. I mean, he was a, he was a political theorist. Trump's not an intellect. Trump's not a political theorist. But there is more intellectual understanding of what is happening, or or a lack of intellectual understanding, a lack of historically curi- historically being curious about why what what got us here. I mean, why did one political party say yeah to that guy when when all he said was drain the swamp, the game is rigged, make America great again i mean it was all about sound bites it was all about bumper stickers i mean you put it on a baseball cap i'm mean, going give give the guy credit he knew that people could relate to make america great again now that means different things to different people at different times and, and once again I'm, I'm just this is back a napkin i mean i don't have any idea how much ceo pay contributed to, to to trump's rise i have no idea what income inequality nafta tarp corporate capitalism bailouts but i'm not a historian I think at some point in time, serious historians need to consider the consequence of Trump getting elected while, while the most prestigious newspaper in America said it was a novelty and covered him as an entertainment article. I mean, that's how out of touch those who decide things normally, and I'm talking about normally, because, you know, historically, they've whipped the conservative base in line. You know, John McCain's turn, Mitt Romney's turn, George W. Bush's turn. And, and the Republican primary voter said, "I don't give a damn whose turn it is. I mean, I'm voting for this guy because I think he leads to disruption, and I think the world that I live in needs to be disrupted. Um, I've been out of favor, and, and my life has been somewhat out of favor with the body politic. You know, m- maybe this guy's a savior, maybe he's not, but he ain't like the rest of us. We thank our sponsors. Carolina Bank serves communities throughout northeastern South Carolina, offering a wide range of services to meet every personal or business need from straightforward accounts to complex finances they're prepared to help you reach your financial goals carolina bank banking on tradition since 1936 member fdic pepsi of florence represent the entire product line of pepsico one of the world's leading food and beverage companies pepsi of florence also serve brands from other great companies such as dr pepper canada dry lipton tea gatorade and various regional brands mickey Fins largest South Carolina Liquor Wholesaler serving every county in the state, largest bourbon selection statewide. They ship wines to 43 states, opening soon a new beverage warehouse across from Bucky's on I 95 in Florence. They support USC athletics, including Williams Bryce and Colonial Life Arena. Marboro Electric Co op. If you're in big business and looking for an industrial park in the South, to build your new plant, consider Marlboro PD Electric Co op's new PD Commerce Center, uh, an industrial park located at the I 95 exit in Florence, South Carolina. Check it out at MPDC Co op or PDEC.com.